Welcome into The Harvest, a podcast dedicated to helping you live your faith and take the message and mission of Jesus out of the building and into the everyday places of life. My name is Andrew Stroud, and on today's show, I'm joined by Sean Lovejoy, founder of CourageToLead.com and author of the book, Measuring Success. Sean and I had a great conversation, and we got into several topics that I think you'll benefit from, including redefining leadership and success, and using the right tools to measure success, and how to avoid the wrong ones. We also had a great talk about the myth of balance and how it limits people's lives. If you're interested in connecting more with Sean and his work, we've included links to his website and his new book, Measuring Success, in the show notes, so check that out. And with that, here's my conversation with Sean Lovejoy. Welcome, Sean. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us. Great to be with you, Andrew. I love San Diego, man. I wish I was with you right now. Well, hopefully sometime in the future, you can come out here and we can meet face to face. But I appreciate you making the time to be with us today. Uh, Let me jump right in. I first became aware of you and your work back in 2016 through a book you wrote titled Be Mean About the Vision. I believe you wrote that with Ed Stetzer. Um, And honestly, I don't know how I came across that. I think it might have been an Amazon Recommends. I was buying another book and that one popped up. I was intrigued by the title and read the description, picked it up. Um, I got a lot of value from that book, passed it on to several friends. And you've got a new book coming out this month that I've also had a chance to read recently called Measuring Success. So we're going to be talking here in just a minute about some of the great stuff in it. But first, how about just telling our listeners a little of your story so they get a sense of where you're coming from? Sure, man. Um, I refer to myself these days, Andrew, as a spiritual entrepreneur. Um, uh, I, I, I've done a little bit of everything. I was a real estate developer. God called into the ministry, vocational ministry, planted a church, grew to be a mega church, realized I was sort of all along an executive trapped in a pastor's body and wired with systems and processes, technology, all of that. And, um, that's not how most church planters are wired. You know, I'm an organizational guy and we, we began coaching just culture, team, systems, the blocking and tackling of organizational health, I call it, which also allows you to be a more focused, disciplined, healthy leader as well. And over time, it's sort of a John Maxwell type story. I just recognized, hey, I'm a pretty good pastor and preacher. I'm really good at this coaching stuff. It's a spiritual gift. And um, I, I, I made a prayerful decision four years ago to hand off the baton of my church. It didn't implode when I left. I'm proud of that. Um, <laughs> That's good. Transitions are never easy, but it, but it's gone as well as any are, are, are better than most hmm. and um, launched Courage to Lead full time. And you're right. My first book, Beaming About the Vision, was the, the organizational health side of what we do in our coaching. Uh, measuring success is the leadership growth side, you know, of what we do. So those are the two things that I'm most passionate about. That's what gets me up in the morning, helping leaders grow and helping organizations be healthy, both marketplace and ministry. Well, I find this fascinating because that, that to me, that's a unique story. It seems that for a lot of folks, when they get called into the ministry, so to speak, to, to use a phrase that's thrown around a lot, it sort of tends to be a one a one-way street that you're going into full-time ministry, the pastorate, and to step out of that and to do it in a healthy way, I think is pretty rare. Have you, has that been your experience or have you heard from people that were surprised that you were making this shift four years ago? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people, you know, share the sentiment, well, either you're called to be a pastor or you're not. And it raised a lot of eyebrows. You know, most people don't mm-hmm. stop pastoring until they have to. So, but I, right. but I actually believe that every every pastor is an interim pastor. You're going to leave. The question mm-hmm. is, how are you going to leave? Are you going to leave when everybody wants you to leave, or will you get to leave when no one wants you to leave? That's the only two <laughs> scenarios. Mm-hmm. And then, how will the church do when you're gone? You know, and mm-hmm. so I think there was a time and season when I think pastors didn't stay long enough, but I actually think you can stay too long, you know, and the church gets built around your personality. And I told my church, I founded the church, was there for 17 years. And I said, you know, it's, it's difficult for you, for me, for me to leave my family like this, but, but it doesn't get easier for you 10 years from now. You know, it gets mm-hmm. more difficult for the church and for me. 
So I got to leave, you know, at 45, what most guys have to do when they're 75 and then figure out what they're going to be when they grow up, you know? And I, I write a lot about this in my book, Measuring Success. My identity was never pastor. My identity right. is Sean. So yeah. for a certain time and season, I felt very, very called to plant a church and lead it and pastor it to mega church status. Really thought I'd be there the rest of my life, you know, but, 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 you know, God works and God moves and God speaks. And I was able to step away from that and do something different because my identity is not wrapped up in, in, in being that. Not some people don't think I'm a pastor anymore, but I, man, I'm pastoring people every single day. Hmm. You know, I'm shepherding people, whether it's the CEO who's overwhelmed and isolated and lonely, the mega church pastor or the church planter that I talked to this morning in Norway who feels completely hmm. alone, you know, so I, I love my job. I love what I do. Yeah, I think that's great. And it also speaks to something that is near and dear to my own heart, which is not compartmentalizing this word ministry or the contribution that the Lord has for us to make here on this earth during this life that that points people towards his son, Jesus, and that uh, is part of contributing to his kingdom coming, his will being done here on earth as it is in heaven. It's it's not just that you have to go into the pastorate to have a ministry. You can still have a ministry and do what you're doing right now um, with coaching and with helping these leaders stay healthy and continue to grow. So tell us a little bit more about CourageToLead.com. What led you to launch that particular platform four years ago? Well, it was actually a, you know, I've, I've, it's been in place since 2009, 2010. And we, you know, I started coaching church planters back in 2001 um, and expanded over time to all pastors. And then we expanded over all, you know, to minute over to the marketplace. And, at, you know, at some point I just realized this was a calling, you know, on my life. But it really began out of a personal sense of crisis three years into planting our church in the midst of an explosive growth cycle. We broke a thousand people for the first time within three years, and I was feeling really good about myself. And I go into this in the book, but my wife basically one night called me on the carpet for allowing this church plant to turn me into a workaholic. And um, thank God I wasn't defensive on this night and I, I repented and, and God turned my life around my marriage, around my ministry around. And, you know, my, my, one of my passions for pastors that we, is that we finished the race sane, centered and married, you know, but that's, that's not just true for pastors. It's true for people who are, you know, work in the church. I think a lot of lay people are too busy in the church and they don't really, you know, you can lose your marriage while you're married to the church. It can happen. You know, um, so I, I want it, it came out of a passion to see people stay healthy and healthy people lead healthy ministries, lead healthy organizations, successful people make up successful organizations. So it always starts with the person, you know, not the collective growth of the ministry. I tell pastors all the time, I'm all for the Great Commission, just not at the expense of the Great Commandment. Hmm. And, and there was a time in my ministry when I got that order. Um, out of sorts. And it cost me. It cost people around me. It cost my staff, cost my marriage, cost my kids. And I don't want that to happen to people. And and I get very concerned about pastors whose churches are growing rapidly, not just those who aren't growing, because things can get very unhealthy. Make sense? Yeah, it does. It, it really does make sense. So right with what you're doing through Courage to Lead, you are encouraging and coaching pastors. But beyond that, leaders across the board in business um, as well as in ministry. Would that be accurate? Absolutely. And my experience and observation has been that the needs aren't that much different. You know, there's order. Yeah. There's a need for a healthy culture. There's a need for a healthy aligned team, you know, around the vision. And there's a need mm -hmm. for healthy systems. And there's a need for healthy rhythms and a daily finish line and a weekly finish line and seasons of intensity, but also seasons of rest. You know, that's just, but all that's true. God's principles work, period. <laughs> the church right. is people, right. you know, both inside the vocation <laughs> and outside the vocation, inside the walls of the, of the building called the church. Some of us call the church and outside of that as well. 
Well, I want to, I really want to dive in. There were several things in your book that I haven't heard very much within the Christian world. And let's just start with the title of the book itself, Measuring Success. This word success can almost be a dirty word, I think, for some people of faith. Should we be chasing success, much less measuring it? But, but let's start, let's start there. How do we define success? Because I think right from the outset, we can, we can get into trouble. Yeah. Well, I say in the opening chapter or so of the book that, you know, I think a lot of our challenges, um, and I can just speak, you know, stronger for men for just a minute, but it's true for ladies as well. But I I can self-deprecate us men more easily because I am one. But I I think Mm -hmm. most of our challenges stem from the fact that we've exchanged the world's definition of success for God's definition of success. And we get all that mixed up. Achievement, accolades, accomplishments, you know, all of that stuff. We, we get all of that and, and, and equate all of that with it, with success versus, you know, how God defines success. And, you know, for example, I give definitions of success throughout the book. It's hard to put, put it in one sentence, but I talk about the fact that, Success is being fully where your feet are. You know, there was a time in my ministry when I was home, but I wasn't home. If you know what I mean. Yeah, Um, I do. Success is being loved and respected by those closest to you. Um, Success is spelled love. Jesus said the most important thing in the world is love. And I, Hmm. to be honest with you, I forget about people sometimes and I want to make it about projects and problems and, uh, production and everything else. And I lose sight of the fact that this is, it's really all about relationships, you know, and then success is about the team, you know, and how I, how I invest into people and, and, and leave a legacy that outlives me, you know, all, all of that, you know, if we, if we really define success properly, according from God's perspective, it's not only a good word, it's a powerful word. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think as people, we're we're built to live lives of purpose. Uh, we're built to pursue um, and and to work to be diligent. And so, starting off with a healthy picture of what success actually means and what it actually looks like is is critical. And I know as I started reading your book, that's really where you started. I think that it that is so key because we're all going to go through life. We're all going to be giving ourselves to something or some things. So do we have the right picture of success and are we pursuing success in a way that, that really matches God's standards, God's values? So we need to get the right definition of success down, but then you also talk about ways that we go about measuring success and some faulty ways of measuring them. You called them the three C's. So, um, (laughs) the way I understood this is we can make a mistake in having the wrong definition of success in the first place, but we can also get into trouble when we go about trying to measure our success with false, uh, faulty instruments. So could you say a little bit more about the three C's of measurement and, and how they throw us off? Yeah. So, you know, I'll speak first of all, my own experience again. We, we, we started our church in 1999. That was before Facebook and Twitter existed. Okay. And of course, Instagram. So the first two years were the hardest two years of my life. And, but we were averaging 200 people after two years. Um, my, the church I grew up in was 400 people. It was 150 years old. So I right. thought we were the fastest growing church in all of humanity because I didn't have the ability to look on Facebook or Instagram and find someone doing it bigger and faster than I was. <laughs> right, right. These days, it's so easy to compare, you know, and one of the first signs of insecurity in a leader is the tendency to compare. And it's, it, 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 it's in all of us, but I can tell you, I used to concern myself a lot more with that. And mm. I've been able to win and become a more secure leader and not compare my talents what I have, what I don't have with what other people have. And I tell leaders, I talk about this in the book, they, 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 they fall into this victim mentality and they say, well, we don't have people like that here. We don't have resources like that here. You know, it's more difficult where we are. So, hmm. I mean, you're not responsible hmm. for what you don't have and what you can't do and where you're not. I mean, that's that all of that 
all of those are indications that I'm talking to an insecure leader when they when they hmm. when they talk about that because we're only responsible for who we are and the talent we've been given. Okay. You can tell I have a southern accent. I'm from Alabama. Okay. I can use that as <laughs> right. I can excuse myself and, and carry a victim mentality because I'm not in a beautiful place like San Diego and I don't have a surfer's body. <laughs> or I or I can take responsibility for who I am, what I've been given, the gifts and experiences God has used to shape me. And man, squeeze those out, become the best version mm-hmm. of myself. So, but, but comparison is the first trap. The second one is copying. You know, we, we tend to think that if we were more like plug in the blank leader, that mm-hmm. man, we'd be more successful. And so we rip off someone else's vision. We rip off someone else's website. We, we rip off someone's clothing style, <laughs> Even in the ministry right. world, we rip off, you know, their, their, their video screens. And, and we, we assume that if we had a hazer in our worship services, then we would be successful, you know, hmm. and, and there's a whole lot of that around there, not producing any fruit. Hmm. And the, the, the best opportunity we have to be successful is becoming the best version of ourselves, not, not living out someone else's testimony. And, and their story, because what they do and how they do ministry flows out of their story. Every right. single one of these guys and gals are different, but it flows out of their story and what they've learned and their knowledge and their experience and their gifts. When we try to live in someone else's skin, you know, it actually limits our movement and mm-hmm. limits the movement of God among his people. But copying is a real temptation. And then last but not least, when neither one of those make us feel more secure, you know, we just we start condemning uh, we become critical. Mm. We become critical mm. of other people. We accuse that pastor of watering down the gospel, you know, because that surely they can't be growing that rapidly and be preaching the gospel. My experience that the fastest growing churches in America are indeed not watering down the gospel. Um, they're just mm. better leaders than the rest of us. And we need to embrace <laughs> that fact. And um, that's okay. They're a five talent person, you know, and when that doesn't work, I'm critical of myself. I'll condemn myself. Well, maybe I'm just not good enough. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. Uh, maybe I don't belong in the ministry. Maybe I can't, you know, be a pastor if I don't fit that mold. Um, and and so we quit. And 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 most, I think, pastors quit right before the harvest because hmm. of just self condemnation um, over what they're not, based upon what someone else is. And so, yeah. you know, I make a real appeal in the book of just becoming secure in your own skin and not trying to wear Saul's armor, but being comfortable right. being the shepherd, and the slingshot and the five stones. I just identify with that. You know, I grew up in Alabama in a family where we shoot slingshots, Andrew. <laughs> and I'm, I, I've become comfortable in my own skin and I'm OK with that. Like me, don't like me. Follow me, don't follow me. I have a word from God. He's spoken to me. Whoever wants to go with me can go. And the, the, the freedom that comes with that, brother, the freedom yeah. that comes yeah. with being set free from all those false expectations that you place on yourself and you place of other people, that is success. Right. Yeah, I've had a, a, a saying for years that all men are insecure. So just realize that all men are insecure. Those who do the best job of managing their insecurities are the ones who end up being leaders who bless and build others up. And so this, this idea of insecurity and how it drives us to use faulty measurements. You talked about the three C's comparison, copying and condemning. I think everyone listening is probably going to be able to identify in their own life that yes, those have been things that I have struggled with, or maybe I'm struggling with right now. So, I guess how do you how do you more quickly identify that you are falling into one of those three faulty measuring sticks that you're you're falling prey to using those because sometimes I think it's happening at a unconscious level. So are sure. there there ways that well, you can encourage one, people? Well, just self-deprecating with us men for a moment. You know, ladies always agree with me on this statement, but I've never had a man who said to me, "Sean, I totally saw it coming." <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, we are that dumb. Okay. We really are that dumb. We're not faking it, ladies. We really are that dumb. I need someone to help me point out my blind spots. 
I, if you want to know what I think discipleship is, Andrew, I believe discipleship yeah. is, it's not a curriculum. It's, it, yeah. it's me giving you in the context of a relationship permission to help me recognize my blind spots and eliminate them. And it's you giving me the same permission. As iron sharpens iron, one friend sharpens another. That's heat and friction. So I need to give someone, hey, if you catch me, you know, running down another pastor, I want to give you permission. Call me on it. Yeah. It doesn't make me look big. It makes me look small. And I realize that. If you Mm -hmm. catch me, you know, trying to be too cute and too clever and too cool like someone else, if you see me trying too hard to fit in to make myself look good, if you catch me talking too much about myself, not listening enough, I'm giving you permission. <laughs> Call right. me on it. You know, if I'm if you if you catch me being too hard on myself, having setting unrealistic expectations for myself for other people, hey, call me on it. Help me, mm-hmm. help me. <laughs> I'm blind. <laughs> help me. <laughs> yeah, and I absolutely. think there's great power in that. And then I tell leaders, whatever you do, when they do approach you. Don't get defensive because if you're defensive, Mm. when someone tries to point out your blind spot, you've just shut down your best opportunity to get better. All this I talk about, you know, in the book, I I mean, I I think it could save marriages. Just that little nugget alone. Um, it, It can save families. It can save ministries. A lot of these senior leaders in churches are get defensive when their team leaders that, that work under them, try to challenge them on a way of thinking on a way that they act or respond the way they lead. And they try to argue intent, which you never should do um, and, hmm. and get defensive. It's a sign of insecurity, number one, but two, it damages the leader, damages the ministry, you know, all of that. So I, I, I want, I want the devil to lose, you know, foothold with all of that and the kingdom to win by us, you know, allowing people to speak into our lives more. Yeah, those those people who are willing to do that, I mean, it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of um, loyalty, I would say, that they really do have your best interest at heart. And so you're right, when we respond defensively, it just pours water over the, the fire that this person is trying to kindle within us. And um, pretty soon those people aren't coming to you anymore That's right. with that type of constructive feedback. Uh, and I really, I love your comment about most leaders quitting just before the harvest. I, I think that that is a powerful statement. And um, another thing that I try to live my life by is that we need to fall in love with being farmers, not fall in love with reaping a harvest. Yeah. Because yeah. harvest by definition is seasonal. Actually, most of the year, you're not going to be experiencing the harvest. Um so if if you're only in it, if your motivation is I need to see a certain type of result or I'm I'm going to become discouraged and throw the towel in, then that's a tough thing because for most of the year, farmers aren't reaping a harvest, but they're doing the other things that enable a harvest. And that sort of takes us into another topic in your book that I thought was absolutely fascinating. I, was, I read your book on a cross-country flight uh, a few weeks back and I... I was uh, almost fist pumping literally, but definitely in my mind, I was fist pumping when you started talking about balance. So you called it the myth of balance, and it's something that you take on uh, head first in this book. So talk to us a little bit about the myth of balance and and why we shouldn't try to live lives of balance. Yeah, um, thank you for asking that question, because I think you know it's something I'm passionate about. Um, I, I don't believe in balance. I don't, I've never met a balanced person. (laughs) I don't think balance is biblical. Um, I don't think we see that in the scriptures. You know, the heroes of faith in the Old Testament, let's be honest, most of those guys were unhinged. (laughs) You know, it doesn't get better in the New Testament. John the Baptist, Peter, those guys are crazy. Paul's crazy. (laughs) Jesus, yep, crazy. Okay, not even balanced. He also didn't even prioritize God, family, ministry. As I talk about in the book, you know, one of the episodes in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Jesus's family comes looking for him one time while he's preaching. And they basically are standing outside the door asking for him to come home. And, you know, if Jesus had always put family first, 
you know, he would say, oh, close the message, close in prayer. My family needs me. Instead, he says, no, right now I'm ministering to my spiritual brothers and right. sisters. I'll be home in a little while. Jesus right. was fully present in the moment, whether he's working, preaching, teaching, or, you know, sitting down, hanging out with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. You know, it's this, it's this rhythm, this ebb and flow between intensity and rest, emotionally, mm. relationally, physically, spiritually, you know, all of the above. Uh, ancient times, you know, they, they did not w- work 40 hours a week. They worked 12 hours a day, six days a week, sun up to sundown. They didn't have Netflix, so they just went to bed when it got dark, Andrew. And, <laughs> but that's 72-hour work week. Yeah. But then the seventh day, you know, we know the word Sabbath right. means to cease striving. So there was this ebb and flow. There was a daily finish line, and there was a weekly finish line. And then they had like quarterly finish lines, festivals and celebrations and times of remembrance of what God had done and parties and annual times when they let the land rest. And then every seven years, they said, don't even farm the land the seventh year because you'll rape all the nutrients out of the soil. Scientists Hmm. tell us that you can over farm a soil. Now you can overwork a soil if you can do that to dirt. (laughs) <laughs> How do you think it affects humanity, you know, when we overwork? Yes. So there needs to be this, I believe God teaches life in rhythm. You know, this 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 ebbing and flowing daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually, that between ebb, ebbing and flowing between intensity and rest. And, and mm. I've, I've tried to live that way for the last 20 years of my life. And Man, it's gone well for me. And I've taught those principles to thousands of leaders in the marketplace and the ministry. And they're just they're just living more, you know, fulfilled, satisfied lives. They don't feel guilty when they're at work because they should be at home. They don't feel guilty when they're at home when they should be at work. You know, they're just fully present where they're supposed to be. And and, right. and emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally, all of the above. It's a great way to live. Yeah. So against this idea of balance. You're suggesting rhythm. That would be right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I just don't believe in the idea of trying to give equal time and energy to everything at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I think it's an expectation God never put on us. And yeah, when I you really do that, you'll that. wear yourself out. It was in that context. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, because they yes. had allowed people to put expectations on them that Jesus had not even put on them. And when you do that right. to yourself, you'll wear yourself out. Well, I think also with balance, there's this idea, you've probably heard people suggest this before, that God should be number one, your marriage should be number two, your family should be number three, work should be number four, and then your recreation and hobbies should be number five. Yeah, somewhere I don't know if you've ever heard message, someone. Somewhere, Andrew, <laughs> some, some big preacher must have preached that because it got out there. You know, it did. Then it got preached by everybody. The problem is not one time in scripture can I find that hierarchy and priority. Yeah. I've asked thousands of leaders to prove me wrong on that. I cannot right. find that idea anywhere in scripture. So we got to right. be careful what we preach and teach as pastors, number one. Two, we got to be careful yes. what we believe <laughs> when a pastor <laughs> tells us that. But I've heard that preached from the, from the platform and you probably have as well. I've heard pastors yeah. say it. It just right. doesn't hold up. I don't think it's a biblical model. Well, it's not biblical. It's also just not practical. Um, no one is able to pull that off. Uh, and and our own weekly schedules put the lie to to that. We're not. Most of our time is spent uh, at work uh, for for most people, for most uh, men, and for many women. And so, what happens is we're never. If we believe that, we try to. We try to live by that, but then our life doesn't actually reflect it. Then, then there are all these feelings, these constant feelings of guilt. Um, and you never, you never get around to the things that are down there at number four or number five. So the recreation, the rest, the hobbies, if you're really trying to, to follow this pecking order. So I really appreciated, I mean, I would tell people that are listening to this, um, for that alone, your book was was it brought a lot of value to me. You talked about four core skills that we need to develop in order to live life in rhythm. You talked about self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and 
relationship management. We're not going to necessarily dig too deeply into all of those, but how do you see those things helping us achieve rhythm? Sure. Well, all of those refer to emotional intelligence, a term that, you know, is growing and growing in its popularity. Um, Forbes says that 75% of terminations in the workplace are due to emotional intelligence issues. I couldn't mm-hmm. tell you how many times it's been my experience and observation in coaching leaders, both in the marketplace and in ministry. When the guy who's in, in you know, being threatened to be fired is the most brilliant person in the room. You know, mm-hmm. we like to focus on IQ and, and knowledge and experience you know, when from God's perspective, you can have lots of experience like Solomon did and become a fool <laughs> in the latter yeah. part of your life. You can have lots of knowledge. And Jesus said it can puff you up with pride, you know, but it's another thing to have wisdom, wisdom, to have self-awareness, emotional awareness, emotional management, you know, all of that. In my Facebook and Instagram live this morning, I did with my crowd. I just defined our our ministry is named courage to lead courage is refusing to be paralyzed by your emotions. Hmm. And it's a, it's, it's refusing to be led by your emotions. It's refusing Hmm. to react based upon emotion, based upon your, your, your emotions. So, so I I really believe there's a huge need for all of us to become more self-aware in terms of how, how our emotions uh, deceive us. The heart is deceitfully wicked. There is a way that seems right to a man. All of that over and over and over in Scripture says, man, we need to know ourselves better. I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of licensed professional Christian counseling. I'm a big fan of you know vulnerability and a last 10% culture in our organizations where people can help us. Hey, you, you, may, you may not have meant that, Pastor. You may not have meant that, Boss. But the way you handled that in that meeting you know, made everybody feel like they were an inch tall. And you just suck the air out of the room, you know, by what you said. We had a lot of wins at that event and you came in and focused on everything that was wrong. Hmm. Well, you know what? We had that kind of culture when I was a pastor where my guys could call me on that. And you know what? I was better for it. But if I, if I don't have someone helping me with that and learn to, you know, filter what I think and what I say and how I say it and how I treat people, how I come across um, in, 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 in social settings all of that, then I'm going to forever be my own liability. So all of that is, you know, while we try to, you know, help guys assess their own emotional intelligence and, and get better at that. One thing you talked about in the book that I really appreciated was discipline. And so if, if be mean about the vision, your previous book was about organizational health and your new book measuring success is about the health of a leader Part of it, I think, is our mindset, just understanding our weaknesses, our insecurities, and how those play out. But then it really comes down to taking action. And so could you share with us what are some of the ways that you've taken action in your own life, whether it's building routines or rhythms? You've talked about purposely encouraging your team to come to you and to to let you know when you've missed the mark. Uh, how does discipline play into this self-awareness and living life in rhythm? It's sort of like, you know, in discipleship, uh, one of the things we throw around is having a, an accountability partner. But the truth is you, you can only be accountable to the depth of your honesty, you know, with another person. Um, I can I can lie to myself if I want to. But mm. the, the discipline is knowing what you ought to do and knowing you don't want to do it and doing it anyway. That's how I define discipline. (laughs) So it's been, it's been a, it's been a road to recovery in my own life. When I was in college, Andrew, I wouldn't even take an eight o'clock class because I took several early on (laughs) and I would oversleep the class so many times I was about to fail due to absences. They call it FA (laughs) in Uh college admissions. And I'd have to go drop the course before I Mm. FA'd the course. I couldn't, I couldn't get up in the morning, you know? And Mm. so I, I began to, to get convicted about that. And started getting up 30 minutes earlier, you know, about every year, every other year. You know, now I I to get up between 4 and 5 a.m. Because I'd rather rob my sleep than rob my family. 
Um, mm-hmm. And and I, I, I want to, I get my best work done after a few hours sleep. So I used to love late night television. Uh, David Letterman will always be my favorite. Thank God for DVRs. And I don't have to watch anything live anymore. And I, I frankly, I've given up late night TV altogether. I still love a little bit of Netflix, but you can watch that when you want to. And I try to go to bed at nine o'clock every night. Martin Luther said he's, he's been known as uh, having told, you know, thousands that he would, he would get up at three thirty in the morning and begin his prayer time. And he was asked once, how do you get up so early? He said, go to bed early. <laughs> how do you go to bed early? Get up early. <laughs> and i've learned that in my own life i've seen that work you know so i've become an early to bed early to rise you know i used to make fun of the fact that i could eat anything i want to and not be obese Hmm. i'm not a person that struggles with obesity but i was really unhealthy for a lot of years and i beat my body into submission changed my diet my exercise you know i was terrible at maintaining a date night family night good rhythm I've recovered from all of those things. So I am proof. Okay. I bear mm. the scars of somebody who got all of this wrong early in my life. Right. Repented, which means to change the way I think first, then begin to change the way I act and recovered and now teach it to other people. So yeah. I, I'm a trophy of God's grace in these areas that if, if, if you're listening today to this podcast and you don't feel like a disciplined person, um, don't buy into the myth that you can't become one. Um, right. You can, you can. God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love, a sound mind. Some translations say self-discipline, self-control mm-hmm. is a fruit of the spirit. So it's ultimately not us that does it; it's Christ that does it in us and through us, and helps us overcome the things we don't want to do, that we want to do, the things we want to do that we don't want to, do, you know, that we don't end up doing. All that the Apostle Paul talks about. It's always a journey. It's always a, a, you know, a work in progress, but we can get better over time. And the thing about it is if you get disciplined in one area of your life, one area of discipline tends to flow over into other areas of discipline. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it really is true. I I sometimes make a distinction between self-discipline and self-control. In my mind, self-control is choosing not to do something that I want to do because I know it's not the best choice it's not the best action to take. And so self-control can be easily seen in nutrition, not eating the things that I want to eat because I know this isn't good for me. So that's self-control. It's, it's, a, it's a, an act of abstinence, so to speak. Self-discipline is choosing to do things that I know are in my best interest or are the best choice possible, even when I don't feel like doing them. Um, but you're right. Both of those are, are activities that we need to be willing to make. It's not just enough to feel bad or to change our way of thinking. Ultimately, we have to change our behavior. We have to change our lifestyle. And one of my favorite sections in your book was about something you called the gears of growth. And, uh, you started with this statement, stop asking God to grow your ministry or organization and ask God to grow you get better. And I love that. And I think that's some of what we're talking about right here as leaders. How do we become better versions, the best versions of ourselves? Because that's really going to cascade out and and create the healthy culture, the healthy ministry, the healthy organization, um, the healthy family that we all want to see. So tell us a little bit more about what are the gears of growth and how can they help us grow and get better? Well, you're right. I, I do believe, you know, so many times we're waiting on God to grow us and waiting on God to grow our organizations. And the truth is he's waiting on us. He's waiting on us mm-hmm. to say yes, to partner with him, to surrender to him and decide that we're not going to play the role of victim and we're going to get better. We're going to take responsibility to get better. And that's a that's a that's a partnership with us in the Holy Spirit. So I believe it's five things. Uh, I call them the five metrics that matter when it comes to success. It's my purpose, which is being secure in my own and skin and embracing my uniqueness. It's my priorities, 
it's really embracing about the five things, the fab five, I call them the five things that are going to provide mm-hmm. the greatest return on investment of my time and saying no to virtually everything else. <laughs> it's progress. It's making progress daily. We talk about the, the, the value of setting process oriented goals instead of scoreboard oriented goals for us, which are based on our habits. And then there's the stewarding, the passion side of our lives. The most successful leaders I know are the most passionate people I know because they just mm. don't care what people think about them. And they're not worried about running someone else's race, but they have a deep set of calling and they recognize, man, I I have influence. I need to steward it well and I need to inspire people. That's my responsibility everywhere around me. And then the last one is people, you know, do do, what, what kind of impact am I having and what kind of legacy will I leave on, on people's lives? Every day we get up, we decide, are we going to focus on the projects, the problems, you know, et cetera, or, are we going to make our lives about adding value to people and living out our own personal value proposition based upon the way God wired us and what he's called us to do? Yeah, I love those. I love that section of the book. Um, I'm just going to restate those for those that are listening. Um, the, the gears of growth, there are five that you talk about. One is purpose, then priorities, progress, passion, and people. So um, I want to loop back to priorities because you mentioned there, you talked about your fab five. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you go about setting priorities and uh, how people can get better at isolating, identifying, and then focusing on those top priorities? Yeah. So one is just knowing the goal, you know, what, it, what, what moves the scoreboard here? What is the scoreboard? How do, how do we know if we're winning? And then, um, you know, then how do I need to leverage my time? How do I need to spend my time to best provide return on investment? I think time is a more precious commodity than money because we recognize the commoditization of money, but we don't (laughs) with our time. So we waste inordinate amounts of time and we react and respond rather than initiate you know, the things that need to happen. So I coach leaders to build the, find the five things, you know, that's not a biblical number, but the idea works. There are five work days, generally speaking to a week. So you can take a morning, an afternoon, a chunk of time each day and focus on one of those things. Um, For instance, I've authored my third book. I mean, if, if, if I had a dime for every leader who told me, man, I'd love to write a book one day, <laughs> I'd be a rich person. <laughs> but the, the discipline, how do you write a book? You know, 30 minutes a day. That's how you write a book. Ultimately, you know, you, you, you spend a little bit of time working on it over time and your habits compound, you know, over time. And that's just the way it works with life and love and leadership and, you know, everything else in our lives, I believe. I love that. I think, and they are interconnected, these, these five gears of growth, because if you're clear on your purpose, then your priorities are really going to flow out of that. You know, what are the activities? What are the small steps that are going to lead you towards your purpose? And I love the idea of resetting that every day. The, the guy who discipled me once told me that success comes to people who, who make lists. They, they, they make a list of priorities. Maybe they list 10 things. Um, and they start working down that list from one to, to 10. And inevitably what happens is you don't reach the end of that list. So the next day rolls around. You don't start with number seven. You make a whole new list. And so uh, number seven may never get done because it may not be the most valuable activity that you can give yourself to. So every day you're resetting and you're identifying what are my, my top priorities today that are going to move me towards this purpose that God has called me to. So I love that. I, I do something similar where every day I try to identify what are the big three if I got these three things done today, they would have the max benefit um, in moving me towards my purpose. Um, 
So let's talk about purpose, if you don't mind, the, that first gear of purpose that you talk about in the book, because you talk about uh, speaking a set of declarations, that you have a set of declarations that um, you speak over yourself consistently and audibly, and that was something new to me. So where did you come across that, and how has that, how has that helped you? Well, first of all, I, I doubt I've ever had an original thought. Um, I don't think I have. If you think about it, every thought you've ever had, you learn from someone else. So I got the thought uh, of declarations from my pastor, Chris Hodges, who told me he got it from Craig Rochelle, who Craig Rochelle probably ripped off from someone else. <laughs> so uh, every everything you know, you learn from someone else. So it, it, it was my pastor, you know, Chris, who told me that, you know, he just had this set of daily declarations, declar- the, the evil one you know, comes to, to steal, kill, and destroy. He's the liar uh, in our lives, the deceiver. And he'll have us believe things about ourselves and believe things about our worldview and and believe things about our spouse and, you know, our careers and everything else. And so he just walks around in his study and speaks these daily declarations that are truths out of God's word, you know, over his life every day. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, I need that in my life. So it, it, it was at that point about, Four or five years ago, I began to build this rhythm of worship into my life um, where I honor God by agreeing with him about, Hmm. you know, how he sees me, how he sees me. And so I'll pull that list out and I walk around in my study. I have gone uh, prayer walking through my neighborhood and people probably think I'm babbling drunk at 5 a.m. in the morning. (laughs) <laughs> but but I walk around and I just sort of declare these declarations. You know, they're on my phone and I, I'm able to, you know, just declare how God sees me and 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 what he says about me and uh, what I believe about myself and the world. And, you know, things like God's first in my life. He deserves my first and my best. I love my my wife and I, I treasure her more than any other woman. I'm going to make this day about serving and loving people and, and get over myself. Um, my children mm-hmm. are a gift from God. I need to say that on some days, Andrew, because some days I want to kill them. <laughs> I think they're the curse of the devil. <laughs> so I, I speak these things over my life that I know are truths from God's because it's good for me to give voice to the, 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 the truth versus the evil. I heard, I heard Les Parrott say this, who spoke at our church. New York Times bestselling author, marriage ministry, you know, guru. He said that recent research out of UCLA stated that 85% of the self-talk, which means how you, what you say to yourself privately, is negative. 85% of our self-talk wow. is negative. 15%. I actually think they're being generous. <laughs> you yeah, know, for most amazing. of us, we just tend to be down on ourselves be down on ourselves. And I tell leaders all the time, and I know our time is running short. I tell leaders all the time that there's a thin line between confronting your sin and condemning yourself because of your sin. Hmm. And, and we need to confront our sin. We need to be convicted by our mistakes and what we're not and what we're not good at and mistakes we make and all that. But we all, that's only so we can get better. That's only so that, you know, in our weakness, we find great power in resting, you know, on him. And that's what I try to do, you know, not on a daily basis to work through this list, but at, but at least weekly. You know, it's part of my worship to walk through this, you know, these daily declarations. Yeah, it sounds like it's part of the rhythm that uh, helps you stay stay on the track. Well, I know your passion is coaching. Talk to us a little bit about, I mean, most of us probably don't have a lot of experience with coaching. So why do we need it? How can it help us? And where can we find it? Well, first of all, I'm real passionate about, you know, what, how we define coaching. You know, coaching is not content delivery. It's not training. It's not curriculum. Coaching requires a relationship. I don't think we get better with time and experience and reps. I think we get better with reps and feedback. I think coaching requires Mm -hmm. a relationship. So the lion's share of our coaching is one-on-one. You know, right now we have 17 coaches as of the time of this recording from West Coast Mm -hmm. to East Coast, downtown LA to New Jersey and everywhere in between. 
we want, I believe every leader needs a coach. I've had great coaches in my life and you get a coach's cell phone number so they can talk you off the ledge in every way. And then we want to mm-hmm. meet with you every month and we want to really get to know you. We'd love to get to know your team and really help you walk alongside you. It's really mentoring, you know, and it's by practitioners. We don't have any full-time consultants. They're all practitioners, either in the marketplace or in ministry, who've had a lot of success. They're just having to be a little further along and have, you know, experienced more pain than you have and learn from their pain. So why not learn from someone else's pain <laughs> instead of reliving yeah. the same pain over and over and over again? You can avoid some pain by learning from the pain yeah. of others. And so we've kind of built our entire coaching mechanism around those organizational gears of growth, culture, team systems, but in, then also those personal gears of growth we've talked about today. So like I said earlier, I'm a speaker and a writer, but I don't consider myself a professional either one of those really. I, I am a I'm a coach. God's gifted me and called yeah. me to this. I'm really good at it. Uh, that's I'm, I'm boasting on him. It's how he's wired me. And I've built a team that is also very gifted to do the same. So that's always our end game, if you will, to coach leaders through what keeps them awake at night. And these these coaches, if if one of these 17 is not in your particular region of the country, that's not a showstopper. No, not at all. In fact, thank God for technology, you know, because a lot of what we do right. is virtual and video and all of that. But at the same time, if budget allows, you know, we, we, we love to come on site and spend time you know, from time to time with the leader, with his ministry. And we try to structure that in if at all possible. Well, Sean, where can people learn more about you, get connected more with your work? Yeah, it's all there at CourageToLead.com. There's hundreds of hours of coaching and articles there about leadership growth and organizational health. No strings attached. You know, all of that's in hopes that you'll get fired up and excited about some of the things we're, you know, talking about, just like with their book, Measuring Success. And reach out to us and get a coach. We'd love to help you. Yeah, I know the website is great. You're active on Facebook. Obviously, your book is coming out this month, so I definitely encourage people to check that out. Um, I got a lot of value out of it. Measuring success should be out by the time this podcast releases. So, yeah, I really appreciate uh, you being on the the podcast. It's been an honor speaking with you, and uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. Hey, man, great hanging with you. Thanks for listening to the show. One of the best ways you can partner with us to grow our community is to share this podcast with your friends. Whether it's word of mouth or sharing our content on social media, we need your help to spread the message. Thanks for being part of our family. Together, we're bringing discipleship into the digital age.